Hey guys, this is Nayoko Wichaksano. You're listening to the Wisdom Archiver. Welcome back to the Wisdom Archiver, Season 2. If you're new to the show, this is a show about preserving stories and passing along wisdom from the veteran leaders to the next generation of leaders. I am very pleased to be joined today by Abhishek Gupta. He is one of my closest friends and one of the persons I really love discussing about intellectual ideas. He is a co-founder at Circles Life, a revolutionary telco company based in Singapore that operates across the region. In this first episode of Season 2, we are honored to be joined by Datuk Dominic Putucheri. He is a revolutionary activist and politician in the anti-colonial movement in India, Malaysia, and Singapore. During and post-World War II. He was subsequently one of the founding members of PAP and Barisan Social during the early formation of Singapore. Dominic was detained multiple times throughout his life for his activisms and he was banished from Singapore until the 1990s. Despite all these struggles, Dominic holds no bitterness in his life and remained positive in his view in life and in his view with regards to the future of democracy. In fact, Dominic had blessed the decision that his son Janil Putucheri took to become Singapore's PAP party whip since June 2019. We will hear in this podcast about Dominic's incredible journey and the wisdom that he has for the next generation of leaders. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dominic. I would love to begin by hearing about how you started this journey um, and how did you get interested in politics and started the, okay. your whole okay. career? Yeah. Well, I know I, I grew up in the 1940s. The 1940s was uh, the Japanese invasion of Malaysia and Southeast Asia mm. and then the subsequent defeat of the Japanese and the return of the British to Malaysia, Malaya at that time. It was also a time when the Asian Revolution, and I mean by Asian Revolution, I mean the anti-colonial movement, the wave of nationalism all over Asia was at its height. And I was a witness as a boy to this remarkable surge of idealism and unity for Asia to find its place in the world as free people. And I was fascinated as a young boy because in my family, yes, we were a very political family, and my brother James had joined the Indian National Army Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, led by Subhash Chandra Bose mm-hmm. and he had gone to Burma and to fight the British colonialism at the border between India and Burma that's the impalas and the surge and the atmosphere uh, we grew up or rather I grew up with a strong sense of a anti-colonial view of view that the way forward for Asia is to free itself 
from uh, Western imperialism. So it didn't matter whether it was Indonesia, India, China, Vietnam, or anywhere. I was part of that anti-colonial movement. Uh, in the anti-colonial movement uh, uh, was very, very significant in my life. And it continued until uh, the independence movement for Malaya took place. And I joined that also. Wow, that's quite interesting as well. You, you also, I, I recall you also moved to Johor Bahru when you were only four months old, right? Yes, right. That's so right. So you did experience, um, I mean, when you were little, you did experience some Japanese occupation as well. Um, what was it like back then? It was, I was about maybe 10, 12 years old. Uh, yeah, it was, it is a mixture. It was a mixture. Mixture in this sense. Uh, my focus at that time was India. Uh, Indian independence movement. Uh, and of course, the anti-colonial movement generally. Um, I joined a, a youth section, even as a very young boy. Uh, it's called Balak Sena. Mm. That is the youth army. Uh, which is training young people to later on carry on the armed struggle for India's independence. That's wow. really interesting. That is really interesting, I guess. Um, you know, what, what I find very interesting about this, this narrative, uh, Dominic, is it started off with strong allegiances to India. And uh, it's, it's come a long way from there. Uh, yes, it did. It did. It did. And how did that switch happen? Because, um, well, once independent India became independent, mm. then by that time, the Malaysian independent movement also had, had arisen, had mm. taken form and shape. Uh, and then it was a question of deciding whether we are Indians or Malayans at that time. And we decided India has already got its independence. We have to decide our own identity. And that identity was a Malayan identity. And 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 the issue of India's independence no longer became an issue with us. Hmm. So you you are born revolutionaries. You you just want to free everybody from anti from colonialism, right? Wherever it is, wherever it is. In fact, many of the Indonesian leaders inspired me. Uh, and I was a young boy. I used to hear stories of, 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 of political leaders, uh, poets and writers from Indonesia. And so it didn't matter. Race didn't matter at all. And geography didn't matter at all. It was a sense of Asian, Asian resurgence, really. Actually, as a, sorry to interrupt, but actually as an Indonesian, I'm really curious, Dominic, why was it that back then, if we had this sense of like, um, you know, because Mal Malaysian and Indonesian is very, very close, right? Yes, I right. know that yes. it's, it's just divided by uh, different ruler, essentially. Uh, one yeah. is British, the other one is, is Dutch. Why was it that there was not able to have a unification in, in, in that sense back then? I, I was wondering what people were thinking back then that, no, you know, at that time, there was a movement 
for uh, unity with Indonesia. It was called Indonesia Raya. And the leading movement for that was the Malay Nationalist Movement. But there was also, because of history, uh, 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 movements for independence of Malaya, irrespective of Indonesia. So there was a, a movement for independence with Indonesia, and there was also a movement in for independence of Malaya separately from Indonesia. These two was not necessarily in conflict. But what happened was, I think it was in 19, sometime in 1945, the Americans and the British said, we will only support Indonesian independence if Malaya was excluded from the, uh, the idea of Indonesia. And I think in uh, Sukarno and the others accepted that, accepted that. Oh, and wow. from that point onwards, the Malay nationalist movement became uh, Malay nationalist movement in the full sense, mm -hmm. in the sense that it was for independence of Malaya. It the was a very progressive yeah. movement. The Malay nationalist movement was a very progressive movement. If history were were to turn out where it was a unification with Indonesia, what did you think? Would that have been a, a good choice, or would that, what, uh, or would that be a mistake? You think? You know, I'm, uh, I'm also, uh, shall we say, influenced by history. I have, a, I have a very strong sense of history and, and commitment to history. Uh, Malaya, the peninsula of Malaya, was in most part of its history, part of Indonesian history. It was Majapahit, uh, Srivijaya, uh, its people were all cosmopolitan. Uh, it was from the Nusantara, uh, the, what is called the Indonesian archipelago. So the identity issue between we as people of Peninsula and Indonesia was very blur. And not only blur, I would say there was an identity, uh, a very strong identity. I was inspired a lot by Indonesian uh, leaders. And I had at one time ambitions to go and study in Indonesia. And, uh, and at one point of time, I turned back and I said, no, uh, I will not do that. But I have, I've never, Indonesia is the closest country uh, to my heart. But you know, it was, uh, Indonesia, Indonesia took its own course. Yeah. And there was no possibility of a unity between Malaysia mm -hmm. and, uh, Malaya and, and Indonesia at that time. Mm -hmm. And we had to find our own way. That is what the Indonesians wanted. That mm -hmm. is what the Malay Nash, Malaysian nationalists wanted, mm -hmm. and I thought that was my commitment to him. Mm -hmm. It was really, really because of the, uh, the the imperials who wanted us separated, right? Yes, that was, yes, that is really correct. The, and of yeah. course, throughout history, after the Dutch and the British took control of these territories, mm -hmm. they developed also separately. The mm -hmm. institutions were different, different. Mm -hmm. The language was different, mm -hmm. and the history was different. 
You know, the, the one thing that the British did not want was any common identity between Malaya and Indonesia. Mm. Why do you think that was? Because th- that means to say, if there was a common identity, we would be part of the Indonesian uh, uh, independence movement. The British wanted to keep it for themselves. Malaya was their, their mm. most important colonial outpost, the highest uh, dollar-earning region colony, uh, colony for them. They wanted to keep it. When they had, uh, when the, the Yalta uh, peace talks took place, the one issue that the British and the Americans wanted the Russians to agree to was that Malaya will be left alone in the British political sphere and Stalin agreed to it. So the Americans, the British have all decided Malaya is going to be separate. It is it is a price to be given to the British. I guess if 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 also because of this strait uh, as well, right? The strait is so important. If, yes. If, that, if Malaysia and Indonesia yeah. were to join, Indonesia could effectively close that strait at any any moment. Yes. Anymore. Yes. That is correct. That is correct. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I see. It's it's really divide and conquer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, yes, yes. <sighs> it must have felt really strange then to have the Japanese, since you speak of the Asian independence consciousness, to to come in and do the same kind of atrocities. Because that is correct. Uh, <laughs> that is correct. That's correct. And we we had to deal with that separately. And in other words. We were not going to throw the baby with the bathwater. Mm. The Japanese were help, prepared to help the independence of, of Asia. Well, well and good. We will deal with them after we have got independence. Yeah. But would you they say were, they were worse than the British? In, in oh, yes. Definitely. Definitely. They were cruel. They were very cruel. My father was sentenced to death. Wow. By the by the Japanese, because he was a linguist, he knew seven languages, and so when the when the Japanese came, uh, he knew Japanese uh, before the Japanese came. Mm-hmm. He had a library full of Japanese books, and so they thought that he must be a spy. My mother is a little boy to the Kempatai office, and my mother pleading for his life, and finally. They gave him back, they commuted the sentence. In other words, they didn't carry it out on condition. He worked with the Japanese and he he agreed to be a translator, an interpreter and translator of documents for the benefit of the Japanese. Wow. And he survived. Tell me, tell me a bit about your father, uh, Dominic. My, my, my father uh, was a a uh, graduate of the University of Madras. He was a mathematician. It, he, he was a brilliant mathematician student. He was, he was the top of the class. Uh, he found the Indians. He wanted to be part of the Indian civil service in Kerala. And he was very frustrated about what was happening in India. He was also a national, Indian nationalist. And finally, he and a group of people decided 
to come to Malaysia, Malaya at that time, and seek a living. Uh, he became a school teacher when he was, when he arrived here first. Then he became what they call the registrar of aliens because he knew so many languages. Because he had a natural flavor for it. So they gave him the position of a registrar of aliens. And then that, after that, they, they, he became a police prosecutor uh, in the police department. Uh, and then they gave him the rank of a police officer. And then he finally went back to teaching. It's not a, a typical pathway at all. No, no, <laughs> not, not, not a typical path at all. In the house, there was a lot of discussions about history, the past, and everything else. And he was very sympathetic to the nationalist movement. So uh, we, we, we benefited from uh, his collection of books. You know, it's, uh, it is, I can see why the Japanese probably felt threatened uh, by him knowing these languages because it's not at all common. It is for, not common. It is not common. For, for an Indian man, especially from that time, yeah. to own a library full of Japanese books. It's just not common. Uh, in yeah. fact, it's not uh, common today. Even today, <laughs> yeah. And I'm guessing he greatly shaped your views on, on, on each of these topics. It sounds like because in 1940s when you were, uh, you know, still a lot more impressionable than perhaps you are today. Yeah. Uh, he, he, yeah. He, he played a role. He played a role. Uh, my brother played, my brother James played a big, big role. So did my brother George, who, who are elder to me. They all were involved in the, in the nationalism movement one way or another. In fact, the entire family was involved in the independence movement for India and then subsequently to Malaysia. So even your mother was very supportive of this. Yes. My mother was supportive. But my mother was a bit uh, anxious for the, for the safety of our children. Uh, and she was, she was proud of the fact that we, uh, we were what we were. But at the same time, she was, she had a lot of anxiety and she finally had to take all the burden because there was at one time both my brother James and I were de in, in detention by the, by the British and, uh, mm. it seems, it seems that you have gone through Quite a number of detentions in your life. Wow. I went to two or three detentions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in total, like, how long? Uh, in, well, in, the last remember. one was when I was when I was banished from Singapore. Mm. It was nearly but a year. Mm -hmm. After Malaysia gained its independence, um, did you get involved with Lee Kuan Yew after the Malaysian independence or during that Malaysian independence? Well, it was during the uh, just before the independence. Okay. Just before the independence, because at that time uh, we uh, we didn't consider Singapore separate from Malaya uh, and worked in Singapore uh, for the unification of Singapore with Malaya uh, and and for the independence of both Malaysia and Singapore. And my brother James was also very much involved in that. In that, he was already PAP was formed in 1954. So PAP was it a actually a a party that was formed specifically for Singapore? Or was at that time PAP was also involved in Malaysian politics as well? No, at that time it was only Singapore politics. It was formed 
specifically for Singapore, for the unification of Singapore and Malaya. I see. As part of the four whole program. That was not the only program. Interesting. So, actually, yeah. um, uh, forgive me, but I think a lot of the, the listener also um, would like to know, like, what was the background of, of this? Like, when, how, why was it that Singapore uh, was separated at first? And um, Oh, yeah. 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 That was because the British wanted uh, Singapore to be separated from Malaya because Singapore was its outpost, its naval base, its mm. military base, and mm. all that. And so, so they, they had a slightly different form of governance uh, uh, there. It was a colony, but the colony entirely directly controlled by the British. They did not have a semblance of indirect rule. Mm. Whereas in, Mal in Malaya, they had a semblance of indirect rule. I see. Okay. And and so when when you got involved with Lee Kuan Yew, um, mm. you know what what was he like, and what was what were um, when you were there, um, what what was the vision, and how did it diverge uh, at the end? Well, uh, I, I I met Lee Kuan Yew through a mutual friend, uh, and the reason for that meeting was he was trying to recruit. Uh, cadres or young people to work with. And uh, we met uh, and uh, we discussed a lot. And I was convinced that he was a man of great ability and uh, committed. And therefore, I decided not to go to university, but to go and join him. Uh, in the, in the organization of the PAP, so I became an organizer for PAP, and I was in, uh, I worked in the trade union movement. I made in political groups, uh, and finally I was I became the assistant organizing secretary. Uh, uh, yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, Lee Kuan Yew was a very able man. There's no doubt about it. He was. Um, both a thinker and a doer. Mm. Uh. You know, it's pretty amazing to uh, to uh, to skip university, especially coming from a family where your father spoke seven languages, probably read hundreds of books. Uh, mm. So that must that that couldn't have been a straightforward leap for you, and you must have really believed in his ability. It's uh, it's uh, it speaks volumes about him as much as it speaks about you and your commitment, actually. Yeah, we we well, you know, uh, it was uh, it was uh, a very interesting meeting that I had with Mr. Lee, and subsequently after I joined him, I used to meet him very often, almost every Wednesday, have lunch with, like a one-on-one -on -one meeting, and uh, during this lunchtime we discussed party matters, political issues. Organizational issues, personalities, nothing, nothing, there was nothing prohibited. Everything was open and discussed. So over the period, I also developed by virtue of my uh, privilege of having contact with him and discussing with him and engaging with him. 
is not always we agreed, but we also disagreed. And when we disagreed, we discussed and we moved on as it went on and on. Uh, uh, I was a very energetic young man uh, <laughs> in the sense that I, I got out early in the morning. I never went back to my room uh, until about midnight. I, you know, everything didn't matter. Interesting. Wow. I mean, at what, at what point in your life you think you have taken the highest risk in, in your life or the most important risk, I, I would say? In your life, well, you know, uh, the risk was always there. The moment you you became an anti-colonial fighter, really, the moment you went into the anti-colonial movement, the risk was already there that you would be arrested, you'd be detained, and anything else would happen. But I think the risk became greater after my after I parted company with Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, why, why was that? The most important reason was that before PAP came into power, uh, there were a lot of political detainees uh, that the British had arrested and put them in detention. And the promise for the uh, of the election was to release them. And uh, that didn't happen. Uh, for various reasons, uh, and that was a big, uh, major issue in my mind. Uh, major issue, major issue. Well, and I was, was that was that because of geopolitics, or was that something else? Uh, there are many reasons. I think I don't. I'm not privy to all that. But I was also a very much more. I must say, uh, at that time, uh, quite uncompromising when it came to uh, the British colonialism, an accommodative right, of British demands and various other things. I, <laughs> I was a, too much of an idealist and a, and an angry young man. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking that, Dominic. I was, you know, it takes a, it takes a passionate man to give up on formal education take these kind of risks and yeah, to yeah, uh, yeah. work so hard and then to give it all up uh, because uh, clearly it is a, you're a principled man clearly i think that's what thank I'm you doing. thank you but you know to me the best university that i have ever been to was the university of my politics in singapore it was a crucible mm. it was it shaped me a lot i learned a lot I went to university at the age of 25. Okay. I began, I began, be, became politically active at the age of 18. Mm. Or even younger, 17, I think, about that. So at 25, 26, I went to university. Accumulated an experience, uh, a political experience, uh, which was quite unusual when I went to university. I can only imagine, actually. I can only mm. imagine. And, uh, like you said, I think what's interesting also is that um, uh, sometimes the role of formal education is uh, quite limited in practical life. And uh, I'm an entrepreneur and so is Nayoko. And mm. for us as well, books can't teach you to be an entrepreneur. You know, it's the same thing. Books can't teach you the reality. Oh, oh, beyond any doubt, beyond any doubt, the university of life is 
the best university. Yeah. Uh, uh, the idea that you go into the world for a while, take a take time off, and then go back back to university is a very good idea. There's a different approach to life, a That's different understanding thing. of life, yeah. and even even in in the field of law, I think there's a difference between knowing the law and understanding the law. Many of them are very good at knowing the law, but very little of understanding the law. That is, you know, yeah. Uh, please, please share. No, yes. you know, you know, you know. I one of the great things I learned as a as a, as a university student was that, you know, if you want to become a lawyer, you have to decide you whether you want to be a plumber or a Pericles. Is that is the that Greek Greek uh, Pericles was the Greek general who who started the Greek civilization, the Athens, Athens, mm. where arts, uh, the time of Socrates and Plato and all that, the flowering of the Greek civilization is always associated with Pericles. The intellectuals. The intellectual, well said, the intellectual. So the plumber is a different guy. He's a very good plumber. He will know all this, all the connections, but he's never a Pericles. Mm. And I think Huan Yu was a Pericles, in a way. And I guess um, you came from a family of intellectuals. Uh, so it only seems uh, natural for you to also want to be a Pericles. Um, and I guess that that's what led to your forming. Uh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. Reading and books was part of our lives. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, what are the major attributes that a successful leader should have? And maybe what do you think the new generations uh, possess today and, and maybe generally lack today that you think are important as a leader? I think one of the things that I'll start with what we lack. One of the things that we lack, the younger generation lack, is a sense of history. Everything is now... Yeah, because because history, if you don't understand, it tends to repeat itself, right, Dominic? Not only repeat itself, it stagnates. There is no sense of the past to make a future. Let me give you uh, an example. Indonesia's, Indonesia's strength is its history. Without history, the island republic of Indonesia will, will melt away. You take China. The strongest thing about China is that not the Communist Party, but the sense of history that the Chinese Communist Party have about what is China. What is the weakness of India? The weakness of India is that history is being eroded. There is no c common sense of values. There is no brotherhood. There is no cohesion. There is no vision. There is no comradeship of people. You can see a hungry man walk past it. Whereas when you have a common identity, when you see a hungry man, you feel you are part of that that the reason why he is hungry, so you have to do something about it. 
And that is the idea of having a vision and an ideal. And you cannot have a vision and an ideal without a sense of history. Hmm. Interesting. And it is actually that sense of history that has made me also what I am. What can the leaders of today do then? I mean, this this is a trend <laughs> everywhere, right? How how yeah, would you say they could correct themselves now? Well, they have to look relook at what they they have done in the past and what has happened. There is no doubt that the Western, if I may use the word imperialism, has won its day in many parts of Asia, and we become markets not nations. We administer so that the consumer consumerism can continue and accumulation of wealth can continue irrespective of what it does to the individual. There is a melting of moral standards, melting of public moral standards, melting of institutions. You see that happening all the time. The kind of value system that the young has now is to be as rich as possible and as quick as possible. That is really because of capitalism. I mean, capitalism is a religion by itself, actually. <laughs> you can call it that. You can also call it... Uh, uh, capitalism has to change. There has been a lot of capitalist thinkers who now think capitalism has to change. Because capitalism has created its own problems. And one of the ma major issues is moral meltdown. What I call the moral meltdown. That people's individual values uh, are no longer commensurate with a civilized society. There is no sense of collect collectivism, collectivism yeah. correct? Yeah. Like everyone is for themselves and just yeah. fending for themselves. Yeah. In, in my when I grew up, I used to I, I used to come to even though I didn't understand very much, I came to know about the poets of India, of China, of Indonesia. Now the young people don't understand who's a what a poet is. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm guilty of that too. <laughs> I I I met I give you two examples. I met an Indian boy. He was he was working. He was studying somewhere, and he was wandering around. Uh, I took a day, took one years off to walk around, uh, to to go travel around the world. So uh, I met him uh, at a bar in in Kuala Lumpur, uh, and we were talking to each other. And I asked him, "What do you think of Gandhi?" And he said, "Who?" I said. Oh. Mahatma Gandhi. You know, he did not know. <laughs> I had, uh, I saw a, po a portrait of Che Guevara. And this young lawyer came along. He had a first class from LSE. Hmm. And uh, he looked at the portrait and he said, Who's that? I said, Guess. Wow. And he looked, he stared at the portrait for a while. And he said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, Jesus Christ was an 
you know, egalitarian as well. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> no, what I'm trying to say is that there is no, when these are examples of people, what, yeah, I, what yeah. I said earlier, they have no sense of history. Exactly, yes. Uh, wow. wow. That's, um, that's, yeah, that's something that we definitely need to, to remind and, and fix in our current society. Yeah, yeah. So, as, as, um, you know, as, as a respected and long-time leader, what do you think is the best advice you can give to the generations today um, on, on, on how they, they should, you know, live their life and how they should be more responsible for the future as well? Well, the best thing I can say now is to open up their minds, search for knowledge without fear and inhibition and spend your time thinking also a little bit. There's no point in reading or learning without thinking. Thinking is a very important aspect of it. It is not all about doing, it's also about thinking. Everything has to be thought about. And this idea of having an intellectual class is a very important one. Great. Can you elaborate a bit about the, about the intellectual class? Well, all progress in the past has been led by intellectuals. The thinkers, what I mean by intellectuals, the thinkers. From the poets to the novelists to the historians to the philosophers. We need these people at every stage of our development. And in, in a society that is going to be progressive, it is these people who are in the forefront, who are the exalted ones, who are the examples of society, not the interpruner. The interpruner is a plumber. He's a necessity, he's a necessary uh, component in the economy. But he alone, or his, his activities alone, will not make a man. Uh, it's not just about enterprising, but no. what, what can you impact the society? What social impact can you bring? That's right. right. What can you make of, of other people? How do you make and other maybe, people better? Yeah. Sorry, sorry for jumping in. I was saying maybe maybe another way to look at it might be the entrepreneur exists because there's an intellectual who created the space for the entrepreneur to exist in some ways or created a framework, one could say. Yes, to some extent. But the entrepreneur is... The, 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 the status of the entrepreneur is not of, of being the philosopher, the ruler, or the thinker, or the maker of values. He is a doer. He is a creator of many things, but he cannot create values, can he? Mm, that, that is also part of culture, right? And, and it has to be driven by the entire society. It's a remarkable thing, achieving computers, things like that. But he doesn't create values. The value is created by, by the thinker, by the, value, by the intellectuals, who see it 
as a means to knowledge, as a means of disseminating knowledge, or making people more empowering people mm. to be able to make better choices in life. That can only come by the intellectuals looking at what has been achieved in society and how it fits into the human development and progress. What what would you say your the major values uh, or principles that you live by, Thomas? Uh, that's a very big question. I think the most important concern for other human beings. That is the my major, major, shall we say, inspiring uh, factor that, that puts me onto everything else, who inspires me to do, to read, to, to write, to search to have friends, to talk, is because I want to be a better person so that I can make other people better and help the other people. And a sense of human dignity is very important. Not for yourself alone, but for every citizen. Mm. you, you You must have the relationship between People, your concern yeah. for human beings, your concern for human beings. We are losing that. We are losing that. That concern for fellow human beings. Because, I mean, right now there's also uh, a lot of talk about oh, your human rights and freedom of speech and things like that. That yeah. sometimes could conflict with this value. How? What's your view on that? Well, I don't think any of these things like freedom, freedom of speech are uh, 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 conflicts with that kind of value. In fact, it is freedom of speech and dissent that has the right to dissent that has made the world more progressive than it was before. But it is in societies where there was no hmm. dissent. From the time of Socrates, it is dissent that gave us the inspiration to change, to listen to something new. However, I mean, as long as that the speech or freedom of speech is it's responsible and telling the truth, right? But today there's a lot of, uh, for example, fake news or oh yes, that yeah, is true. So, that is true. So shouldn't freedom of speech be also used responsibly in this sense? Yo, so how do you beyond any that? doubt, beyond any doubt, beyond any doubt, that is the balance. That is the balance. That's where the intellectuals come in. When the intellectuals come in in the picture. They this they sieve out the fake. They sieve out sieve out the false, and and propagate or write or think or explain express express the 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 truth. And it is this contest between truth and falsehood throughout history. You can't avoid it, but you must challenge it. And what is happening is that they are trying to stop the challenge. Because because there are, like, for example, uh, what's happening with Donald Trump and others, right? There is oh. this concept of deplatforming people who have been telling lies a lot um, or, yeah. or spreading fake news. But yeah. on, the, on the flip side, by deplatforming, de- de- it 
also kills this scent. I mean, even though these guys are not telling the truth, it's it's a tricky balance, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. It is because the society looks up to the to the intellectual. You know, in the old in the old society, you mean in India and all in China and Indonesia, the most respected person in a village is the poet, the writer, mm. the kavi, the novelist. You know, the philosopher, the thinker. Nowadays, the guy who's who's most respected is the guy who who's the, the loudest. <laughs> who also who's the loudest, right? <laughs> yeah, who's the loudest? Because when he got money, he can get the crowd to come in and he gives food. Everybody coming. So hunger becomes very important for these people because yeah. without poverty, they are, they are not they are not powerful. It is poverty that makes the rich very powerful. Also, the economy of attention, right? Today, everybody wants attention, and those who control the most attention have the yeah. most power as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um. So, do you think uh, I have a I have an interesting question here that I I've always wanted to ask uh, somebody like you is, do you think democracy today still works? Because, um. Democracy seems to be really in, uh, shaped by information, right? Shaped by the society itself. And right now, uh, with the advent of social media, fake news and everything, people who are not educated, essentially, uh, who are non-intellectuals, tend to be able to be manipulated easily by all this. And therefore, the entire society, if you're talking about democracy, is based on popular popularity. And the, the population may not exactly choose the right path for the country because of the manipulation by uh, certain players. So does, does this mean that democracy is either in trouble or almost dead or irrelevant? Or how, how do you see that democracy can be fixed? Uh, no, I, think, I think democracy is essential. It is, democracy is about honest exchange. It is not about telling lies. It is not about fake news. Those are the things that have corrupting democracy. Democracy must must fight back and say democracy is about responsibility to society. You enter into a debate with another person because two of you are responsible to each other and to others. And that's democracy. From time immemorial, democracy is about fundamentally honest exchange of views. And we must never, never downgrade democracy. Democracy is important. It's how you define democracy and how you understand democracy that is most important. It's, it's very chaotic, right? Like democracy No, it is not chaotic. No? It is chaotic in some sections, but it is not chaotic in other sections. Where there are responsible people openly discussing it with sincerity and honesty and knowledge, it is it is really refreshing and it, it is great. It is when the the opportunists that the, uh, take over free speech, when the Western interest takes over free speech, that it becomes corrupted. So, in other words. The best people who can challenge this fake news are your intellectual class. 
you are thinkers. So you must always develop it. it is, the fake news in America came about as dominant because the media was controlled by fake people. <laughs> yeah. They have, they have, they have crossed the border into the, into the arena of, of in the intellectual life. And they are, they are like the virus eating away uh, at the intellectual values. Now all you intellectuals who want to write an article will have to come to my newspaper, but I will select you. That's what Rupert does. So democracy must not be, and free speech must not be connected with the power of money. You must separate the idea of free speech and expression from the power of money. It must be owned by community. It's it's sort of difficult because the U.S. is very much a democracy that is tied to capitalism, which is all about no. Democracy. America is not a democracy. America mm. is an electocracy, where uh, and money plays an important role in an electoral system. That's all. Democracy is not an electoral system. So, wh- which which country or society do you think is the most ideal then in the in this? There is no place? ideal democracy yet, but there are ideal pockets of democracy. Focus. Can you give example of a country that you find, uh, you know, the most advanced? <laughs> you're you're, put, you're asking me a very difficult question. <laughs> I know one it's... country, one country that has that kind of democracy. I I I or, really... or at least at least uh, the familiar something close to it. Well, you know, among if I may say so, uh, uh, during let me take example of Indonesia. Indonesia at that time was not an ideal country, no. But it had one important thing. The intellectuals played a major role. When the intellectuals play a major role, then the exchange of ideas, the dynamics of ideas, and dissent plays a big, plays a big role in shaping what is right and wrong. When society threatens any idea that is expressed with punishment, that is the decline of democracy. So I will put it this way. Instead of finding a democracy, of ideal democracy, you find a situation where there is a country that doesn't punish anybody for expressing an idea. I, I would say I'm one of those who are a bit bitter with democracy because of its failures to, to make ah. changes in society. But... Um, hearing what you say, I think it, it, it also helped me to, to have more hope in it, right? Yes. It's a question of <laughs> how you, how you, how you formulate the word democracy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, all this time, Dominic, you, you've gone through so much struggle and also, you know, you went through, um, a detention, jail and so forth and through your activism in your life. How do you not have bitterness? Like, you seem like a very, very optimistic individual <laughs> what is what is what, how do you do that what is your what is the key to that to that that kind of living uh, i i don't must have, know you must have you know gone through a lot of disappointments in your life but many you many, have, many many yeah, many how, how do you overcome that and not have any bitterness in your life uh, i think i see always the big picture the history and I take a lot of joy in discovering ideas. Uh, even talking to you uh, when you ask me about democracy, 
I had not thought about the idea of not looking for an de ideal democratic country, but looking at a country which doesn't punish people for ideas. That came to a dialogue to me. So I enjoyed that kind of dialogue. And because if you are a captive of the past, which is, which is for which you have suffered, you will never go up off, go forward. So you must, you must be able to break loose from all that. And there's always new ideas, new fresh, uh, new excitement. Uh, and I live by the mind and, 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 and the idea that, so that the best thing that any human being can do is to talk, is to be concerned about other human beings. I think there's a lot of, lot of, for lack of a better word, lot of satisfaction and joy in knowing that you can extend an idea an act, a thought, or knowledge to help somebody else. Mm, yes, there is satisfaction in helping others, definitely. That is why I enjoy talking to people, and I enjoy <laughs> sitting and having coffee. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dominic. Not at all, not at all, not at all. Yes. Not at all. Uh, Pleasure. I, I, I don't have uh, any other questions other than um, what what is your dream of the future and what is your vision you would like to uh give to the next generation? I would like two things. To open up the idea of exploring history without mm. fear or favor. Two, to go back to the idea the intellectuals, from the poets to the writers that we today don't have. And we are being attacked for being that. And we must restore these people back in the right place in history. And this struggle, this struggle for, for, a, for a fuller intellectual life, I think is worth it. Worth it. Mm. That keeps me going. I'm 87 now. <laughs> you still sound yes. very, very young. Yeah, you no, sound like you. a 50 year old man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. You still have a lot of vigor in you, so. Yeah, thank yeah, you. I, I, I knew one more thing I would yes. say. I'm actually writing something called Waiting for Democracy. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And this book that I'm struggling with is, uh, is that particular idea that you are talking about, mm. your fear of. And that is why I titled it Waiting for Democracy. Mm. It is a continuous struggle. It will yeah. always be there and dissent must have its place in intellectual life. Mm. And that is democracy. Mm. Yeah, because there's no such thing as perfect in this world. Right, right, right. Well, um, uh, stay, stay safe, Dominic. Sure. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so thank much, you. and have a great day. Same to you, same to both of you. Bye. Thank, thank you, you Abhishek. Bye bye. bye, bye. Well, guys, I hope you learned something from this. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe. I'm your host, Nayakovi Jacksono. Thanks for listening.